Well, I want to thank uh, Steve and Erica for leading us in worship and uh, folks in the band uh, for their tremendous contribution. And a word of thanks to all of our guys who are speakers uh, who have migrated to the back for this section. I don't know why, but uh, trying to avoid me, I guess. No, they're going to slip out in a little while. But uh, I want to thank you all for coming and making this such a wonderful week as we focused uh, on the character of God and particularly on the manifestation of his love. Uh, we had planned that I would have a book out this week. In fact, it was supposed to be released here in January uh, from Word Publication entitled The Love of God. The book is finished. It's been finished for uh, quite a few months. It's been in the hands of the publishers. And for whatever reason, they uh, determined that they would uh, hold off the publication until April so they could capitalize on the Christian Booksellers Convention in the summer and whatever and so I apologize in a sense that uh, the book is not available. Um, when I was originally asked to write a book on the love of God, the publisher said to me, you've written a lot of books that are uh, sort of uh, polemic and they deal with issues. Uh, why don't you just write a, a nice book on the love of God? Just a nice book that, that everybody will just, uh, you know, kind of a warm, nice book on the love of God. And, and I have kind of an analytical mind. And so I said, all right, I'll write a book on the love of God. And uh, I approached the subject. And as I approached the subject, I began to think about the love of God. And I realized that the Bible says God is love. In fact, the Bible calls him the God of love. And we've heard all about that. And, and sometimes we even speak of God's unconditional love. That is, he loves without regard for any kind of human response. And we like to think about God's love as being unconditional. Uh, but you don't get very far into thinking about God's love until you run into some actually frightening questions. Questions like this. If God is really love, then why is the world such a theater of tragedy? If God is really love, then why do so many people suffer? And worse than that, if God really does love the whole world, why is it that he's going to send most of them to hell? If God is really love, then why is there a doctrine called predestination? If God loves everybody, why does he choose some and not others? What kind of love is that? How are we to understand that kind of love? Some would say that if God really, I mean really loved the world, he would never allow people to suffer, he would never allow people to, be, people to be tortured, he would never allow death to be painful, he certainly would never allow people to be punished forever in endless torment. In fact, if they were running the universe, people who would question the kind of love that uh, God has demonstrated, if they were running the universe, they would express their love very differently. They would remove all evil, all pain, all sorrow, and fill time and eternity with happiness and bliss and joy for everybody. And why doesn't God do that if he really loves like we say he loves? Well, I hear that question asked not only by Christians musing about it, but I more often hear that question asked by non-Christians. If God wants everybody to be saved... If God sent his son to die on the cross for the whole world, if God really wants sinners to live in heaven with him, then why in the world didn't he devise a plan that would result in that? And why, on the other hand, did he devise a plan that results in most people spending forever in a lake of fire being tormented? If God's love is for everybody, why didn't he just plan to save everybody? Is he incapable of doing that? Is he overruled by Satan or by men? Is it really what he'd like to do, but he can't pull it off? Is he up in heaven saying, oh, man, I'm, I'm losing him down there? 
If God is the loving father of humanity, wouldn't he act like a loving father would act down here? Um, I mean, I wouldn't allow my children, whom I love, to make choices that would result in their destruction if I could prevent those choices or if I could overrule those choices. Why doesn't God do that? If God is a loving God, why does he allow sin to just corrupt everything? Destroy relationships, destroy families, marriages, friendships, destroy civilization, destroy society. Why? Well, those questions and a lot of others like them have driven people to a couple of errant views. They have driven some people to what we call universalism. Universalism is the theory that in the end, God saves everybody. And some pretty profound theological minds have come to that conclusion. Would you believe people like the venerable John Stott? A man uh, who has blessed us all with many, many books through the years, who most recently began to articulate a universalistic conviction that in the end everybody's going to go to heaven and it is going to be bliss for everybody all the time because he did, did have a very severe problem with these dilemmas and emotionally couldn't cope with them. It happens to some of the very finest minds. And there are others who would go the other direction and they would uh, develop the doctrine not of universalism that everybody's going to get saved, but the doctrine of annihilationism that in the end everybody's going to get destroyed. You're just going to go out of existence because out of existence is a lot better than existence in hell. So God must be loving enough that if he's not going to take you to heaven, at least he's going to just wipe you out so you no longer exist. Some call it soul sleep. Some just frankly call it annihilationism. A whole book has been written on that by a, a man. It's called The Fire That Consumes. He has a very interesting name. His name is Mr. Fudge. Mr. Fudge wrote that book, and I was asked to write a rebuttal to that book and sorted through all of that. Another very outstanding book written by John Blanchard, an English evangelist, a friend of mine, uh, is entitled Whatever Happened to Hell? And in it, he gives a, a tremendous answer to the annihilationists. But those two poles seem to be where people are gravitating who can't deal with the fact that if God is loving, how can he possibly damn people? Either you end up, but in the end, he'll ultimately save everybody, or in the end, he'll just obliterate from any conscious existence people who aren't in heaven. There are some other answers, too. Here's another one that uh, has recently been developed, and I've heard people actually say this in a pulpit, that God doesn't love the world. He never did love the world. We never... Should have thought he loved the world. In fact, he loves only the elect and he hates everybody else. That has some growing interest today. Uh, they are people who preach the hate of God. And they quote the Old Testament where it says he's angry with the wicked every day. These are very, very urgent questions. You, you, can, you can be emotionally captivated by the love of God. You can be spiritually captivated by the love of God. You can be inspired by it as you have all week. But ultimately, in the end, we just kind of want to anchor all of this by, by answering some of these critical, critical questions. Now, I suppose that I could give you the answer in, in the next uh, 45 seconds and sit down if I chose the answer that's given in Romans 9, 20, and 21. It says there this, Who are you, O man? Who answers back to God? That would be the answer, shut up and sit down. You've heard that. 
Paul goes on to say in Romans 9, 20 and 21, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me this way, will it? Or doesn't the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? And that basically is, sit down and shut up. Who are you to answer God? God is God, and God created, and God can do exactly what He wants with what He created. That's true. But it's also true that the Bible keeps saying God so loved what? The world. And that God is love. And somehow we have to fit in the love of God to the dilemmas of ultimate destiny. Now, I want to help you to answer these dilemmas the best I can. And the best I can do, folks, is take you to the Bible. And I can't say any less or any more than it says here. But I want to give you three propositions. Three key propositions. And when you've understood these, you will, you will have what I think is the simplest and best comprehension of how God can be a God of love who loves the world and things still be the way they are both in time and eternity. Three propositions. Number one, God's love is unlimited in extent. It is unlimited in extent. Number two, God's love is limited in degree. And number three, God's love is ultimately directed at his own glory. Those three statements really sum up what the Bible teaches. And I'm going to take you to some passages that are absolutely captivating and in some cases even mind-boggling. Let's take that first one. We'll see how far we can get this morning. God's love is unlimited in extent. There, and I'm going to speak very carefully and very precisely if I can, because these are issues that demand precision. There is that love of God, that real love of God, that real attribute of God, which Scripture clearly shows us is general, universal, indiscriminate, unconditional, and unlimited, extended to all people at all times. And you cannot equivocate on that because the Bible is clear about that. Several times this week, we've had our speakers make reference to Titus chapter 2 and chapter 3. And in Titus 3, 4, it makes this statement, God's love for mankind. That's generic. Crestatase in the Greek. That's a generic love. That God generically loves humanity. Scripture attests to this generic love, this love that has no limits. This unlimited, in extent, love. For example, Matthew 5, 44 and 45. Listen to what it says. Love your enemies because, this is very important, you will manifest the nature of your heavenly Father because He loves His enemies. God's love is not limited to the elect. God's love is not limited to those who are in His family. God loves His enemies. He has a generic, a universal love for mankind, whether they are friends or enemies. That is why Jesus dying on the cross can say, Father, forgive them. In Mark chapter 7, there's a most interesting account of a young man called a rich young ruler. And he came to Jesus. You remember the story. He came to Jesus. He said, what do I need to do to get eternal life. You have the same uh, story recorded by Matthew in chapter 19 of Matthew. 
And the rich young ruler asks the question, what do I do to receive eternal life? Jesus tells him basically two things. You have to repent of your sin. And he wouldn't do that. He said, no, I've kept the law since I was a child. And then secondly, Jesus said, you have to submit to me. Because Jesus said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. It isn't that uh, philanthropy saves. It's simply a test to see whether he would submit. And so Jesus says to him, you have to repent of your sin and be willing to follow me. And the rich man turned away and left. In the face, flagrant, blatant, open rejection. And Mark 10 says, Jesus looking at him loved him. He loved him. He loved a scorning rejecter. He loved an unrepentant sinner. He loved a self-righteous legalist. He loved him. He loves sinners. It's unlimited. John 3.16, God so loved the world. You don't have to throw all kinds of caveats on the end of that. There is an unlimited kind of love which God has expressed. That's why it says in 1 John 2, 2, that he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. That's why John 4, 42 and 1 John 4, 14 says he is the savior of the world. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20, he reconciled the world to himself. There is an unlimited aspect of the love of God. The whole plan of salvation originates from the love of God for the world. Back to Titus 2 again. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Again, is this love given to the world. Now, what is the character of that love? And I could show you other verses, but let's move. What kind of love does He have toward the whole world? Every human being. What is this generic love like? It can be defined in four terms. Number one, it is the love of common grace. Common grace is an old term used for years by the church to refer to the graciousness of God in the common things of life. It's not saving grace. It's not enabling empower grace, empowering grace on a spiritual level. It's not charisma, gifts of grace for a spiritual ministry and service and all of that. It's, it's, it's simply grace which is common to all people. For example, in Matthew chapter 5, our Lord refers to this grace, which is an expression of his universal love. And here is what he says. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, in order that you might be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. And then he adds this. For he causes his Son, S-U-N, to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's common grace. There's a, it's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day for a reprobate as much as it is for a righteous man. It's a beautiful sunset for the ungodly as much as the godly. It's the laugh of a baby. It's the sweet, soft caressing of a mother with a precious infant as she nurses that little life. It's as sweet and warm and precious and fulfilling for an unregenerate person who's never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ as it is for a believer. A blue sky, green grass, the smell of flowers, love, laughter, joy, the fulfillment of a marriage relationship, the joy of children, the bliss 
of all the richness of life, uh, a comfortable chair, a comfortable couch, a comfortable bed, a, a wonderful vacation. That's, that's everybody. The rain falls on the just and it falls on the unjust. And uh, they can all enjoy the fruit of their labor. That's common grace. And God loves commonly like that. This world is so full of the demonstration of the love of God in the richness of life. And the truth of the matter is, the Bible says, in the day that you eat thereof, God said to Adam, you shall surely what? Die. And the wages of sin is death. And God would have every right to take every person who came into this world and the first time they ever sinned, kill them. Certainly, he could do that to the non-elect and nothing in the end would be lost. But because he's a God of love, he gives them a lifetime in which they can just enjoy the temporal benedictions of his love. Secondly, God loves in a generic sense, in a general sense, not only with the love of common grace, but with the love of compassion. With the love of compassion. God's love for mankind is revealed in universal pity. It isn't the, that he loves the, the whole world for what they are. He loves them, in a sense, with pity for what they might have been or could be. God's love for mankind is revealed in His universal pity. God's love for mankind is revealed in His grief. Ezekiel 18.32 I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Jeremiah 13. Jeremiah says, please repent. Please repent. And God is speaking to the prophet. Or mine eye will run down with tears. God is a spirit, and the spirit hath not flesh and bones, Jesus said, but if God could cry feel real tears, he would weep crocodile tears out of pity, grief, and sympathy for mankind. He weeps. In Jeremiah chapter 48, if you ever want to read something that's pensive, Jeremiah 48 talks about the weeping and the wailing of God. And he weeps and he wails over there, the destruction of Moab. He has to destroy Moab because of Moab's sin, but he weeps and he wails over it. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus looks at the city of Jerusalem and he says, O Jerusalem, 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 thou that stonest the prophets and killest those that are sent to you, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chicks, but you would not. And Luke 19.41 adds to that same account, Jesus wept. Jesus wept the tears of sympathy compassion, pity, and grief. That is not a love motivated by present value. That is a, mo a love motivated by lost value. The love of pity, the, lust, the love of sadness over the defaced image of God and all the painful effects of that. Thirdly, the universal unlimited love of God is not only manifest in common grace and in this whole matter of pity or compassion, but thirdly, in warning warning. Love warns. And God's love for mankind is revealed in incessant warnings. Incessant warnings of coming judgment. Warnings about hell. Punishment for those who reject God's grace. Such warnings are all through Scripture. All through Scripture. They start in Genesis and they end in Revelation. 
Warning after warning after warning. And even when you get into the New Testament, the Gospels are filled with warnings. The Epistles are filled with warnings. In fact, uh, perhaps the most powerful of those warnings would be found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where it talks about God's righteous judgment. And it says, God is going to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And He is going to come from heaven with mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. Warnings. That's love. God loves enough to pour out common grace. He loves enough to pity. He loves enough to warn. And then fourth and final, His love is manifested in the gospel offer. The gospel offer. God's love for mankind is revealed in His incessant call to men to be saved. And He makes that call general to all men. He says to the church, go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. What's the gospel? The good news is that God saves from sin through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Go tell everybody about that. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Paul says, I... I, I I have to preach the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I, I preach the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. John 1.9, Christ is the light that lights every man that comes into the world. So God's universal love is manifest in common grace, the fact that He doesn't kill sinners the first time they commit a sin, that He doesn't damn people to hell the first time they violate His law, and that He's filled this world with such richness. I was sharing with our congregation a few weeks ago, you know, this isn't the moon. We don't live on the moon. Everything isn't brown and dirt. This earth is so full of riches. It's just loaded with riches. You, you go into a restaurant and, and look at the menu. Staggering. You go into a jewelry store and look at all that stuff, all of that jewelry, the, the endless products, riches just keep pouring out of this planet. God knew that when He made it that way. And He gave us richly all things to enjoy. And you want to know something? There are a whole lot of reprobate people who are going to spend eternity in hell enjoying those things to the max. That's common grace. It's, an, it's not restricted to the believers only. In fact, in many cases, the believers have less of that stuff. And then God loves with compassion and pity. And God loves enough to warn. And God loves enough to call sinners to salvation. When we go out to preach the love of God, that's what we do. Now, let me go back to John 3.16 for a moment. God's love for the world led Him to provide a Savior for all men. That's why 1 Timothy 4.10 says Jesus is the Savior, or God is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. You know, the Jews were very limited and very exclusive. They thought God was the Savior of Israel and the dammer of everybody else. So that view that He only loves the elect is not really new. It was a Jewish view. They thought God loved them and hated all the Gentiles. Jesus makes it clear in John 3.16 to the Jews that God loves the whole world. The whole world. And He's really saying exactly that. He loves the whole world. You cannot limit that aspect of God's love. Now, a lot more can be said about that, but let's leave it at that particular point with just some punctuation with a few verses that will help strengthen that position. The gospel offer is extended as far 
as the love of God. If God loves the world, then the gospel offer goes to the world. That's why we go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. When we turn to God's word, listen, we see the unmistakable fact that the offer of salvation is universal. It is universal. There are people who talk about a limited atonement and an unlimited atonement. There are people who talk about a limited offer and an unlimited offer. We're not talking about atonement here. We're talking about love. And as far as God's love is concerned, it is to the whole world. And as far as the gospel offer is concerned, it is to the whole world because salvation comes by accepting that offer and damnation comes by what? Rejecting it. Why do people go to hell? Because they weren't elect? No. They go to hell because they believe not on me. Because they refuse the gospel. So the offer is universal. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Anybody who trusts in him is blessed. I have called and you refused. I have stretched out my hand and no one responded. Proverbs 1, 24. Isaiah 55, 1. Come, buy, eat, come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. In other words, uh, the prophet Isaiah is saying salvation is free. Just come and take it. Matthew 22 says the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. He had a marriage for his son. He sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding and they refused to come. Luke 14, a certain man made a great supper and called many, sent his servant at supper time to say to them, come, and they continue to make excuses. The offer is universal. Come unto me, Jesus said, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Whosoever, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Him that comes to me, I will in no wise turn away. John 6, 37. And Luke 10, 2, 10, you remember the words of the angels? The angel said to them, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all people. Christ is the Savior of the world. Thomas Boston, the great Puritan preacher, used the analogy of a king appointing a physician. He said the king appointed a physician who was the physician of the, of the, of the kingdom. He was available to all the people at no cost. He was the official doctor of the kingdom. Whether people choose to come to him or not, it's up to them. Thomas Boston said, so it is with Christ. He's the official savior of the world. And the Father gave him to the world. And the only issue is whether you come to the great physician or not. And in the end, the only people who come to the great physician are the people who know they're what? Sick. That was the problem with the Jews. You're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. John 5:40. Jesus said, you won't come. You won't come. Why? Because they that are well don't think they need a physician. So people don't come. Christ is then the Savior of the world. He was declared to be the Savior of the world by God. He was made the Savior of the world by God. He is available to all who come to Him for spiritual healing. And therefore, all are called to come to Him. The gospel offer is to all. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10 tells us that. So when you talk about the love of God, first point you have to make is it is in some sense unlimited in its extent. Let's go to point two. On the other hand, it is limited in degree. It is limited in degree. Though God genuinely loves the world, enough to give them common grace, enough to weep over them, enough to warn them, and enough to call them to salvation, although God does love the world, that love has limits. That love has limits. This is where the issue gets really powerful. Those limits 
are basically suggested in one verse. 1 Timothy 4.10. In 1 Timothy 4.10, it says he is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now, this is a very important verse. God is the Savior of all men, but especially of believers. What does that mean? Well, you ha it has to mean the same in both cases because melista, the little adverb translated especially, has to tie two things that are equal together. So in whatever sense he is the Savior of believers, he is the Savior of all men. Well, it can't be redemptive. It can't be soul salvation. It can't be eternal life. So what is it? It's simply this, that he saves all men from the consequence of their sin. He saves all men, listen, from the immediate fatal consequences of their sin. Listen, temporally. And that's the distinction in time. But he saves all believers from the consequences of their sin eternally. That's the difference. And I'm back to the point I made earlier. The fact that God doesn't destroy the sinner the first time he sins is because God is by nature a savior he delivers. He saves. He, the Bible even says he winks at sin. He has overlooked sin in the past. He's tolerant. That's common grace. That's pity. That's compassion. That's warning. That's time for repentance. All of those things indicate that God is a Savior. And you can even see that by looking at humanity and seeing how that men and women live their lives, enjoy the fullness of life, and God is saving them from immediate consequences to every sin. That's his nature. But especially is he a savior of believers because he saves us not just temporally, that is in time and in this world, but he saves us from our sin eternally. Eternally. So now we're talking about a degree of love that is way beyond the kind of love he has for the world. The kind of love that he has for the world eventually turns to hate and wrath, and judgment, and hell. The kind of love he has for those who are his is eternal. And the best verse I know to simply state it is John 13, 1. I wish we had time to dig into that verse. We won't take the time. But it's enough to just read it. In John 13, 1, here's what our Lord said. Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that the hour had come, now we're going to look right into the heart of Jesus. He knew his hour had come that he would die and depart out of this world to the Father. It says this, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them. He loved them. Ice tell us. Some translations say to the end. Some say completely. Some say perfectly. And all of that is accurate. He loved his own perfectly. There is a love that God has for the world. And it is universal in extent, but it is limited in degree. He loves the world, but not like he loves his own. He loves the world, and that love is manifest in those four ways I told you, but he loves his own in a different way. He loves them to perfection. He loves them completely, that can be translated. Ice telos, completely, perfectly, or if you want it in the vernacular, to the max. To the end, to the last, to the extreme, 
That's how he loves his own. That's how he loves those of you who believe. That's how he loves me. To the max of all eternity. Even if we are cowards, even if we are disloyal, even if we are fearful, even if we are scattered, he loves us. He loves us so much that he protects us from temptation and never allows any temptation to come over us that is more than we can bear. He loves us so much that he forgives us all our trespasses constantly through our whole lifetime so we never ever have anything against our account. He loves us even when we are disobedient. He loves us enough to send us the Holy Spirit. He loved us supremely. Greater love hath no man than this that he laid down his life for his friends. He loved us, <clears throat> loved us enough to die for us. He loves us endlessly, forever and ever and ever. I want to show you an illustration of this. I want you to turn to Ezekiel. I hope you have an Old Testament. This is an absolutely mind-boggling chapter. Ezekiel chapter 16. Here is the best illustration of the uniqueness of the love of God for his own that I know of anywhere in the Bible. And this is an incredible chapter. Ezekiel chapter 16. The most vivid, the most forceful chapter in the whole of Ezekiel. Also the longest. It demonstrates God's love for Israel. Now remember, Israel was his own. So now we're going to find out what God's forgiving, eternal love is like by looking at this illustration. If we want to know how he loves his own, we can look here and see. The story of Israel, by the way, is presented in this chapter in a loathsome way. This is sordid, gross imagery. Some rabbis, many rabbis, said this chapter should never be read or explained in public. So, uh, and that's in the Mishnah, codification of Jewish law. So Rabbi Eliezer ben Hyrcanus, notwithstanding, here we go. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord wasn't cut. Nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You weren't rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were hated on the day you were born. You ever read in the newspaper about finding a baby in a trash bin? A couple of days ago I saw on the news some guy found a dead baby behind a bunch of bushes in a parking lot. Sick. We can't imagine that kind of treatment. That's exactly the kind of thing that's being described here. Now the burden of the prophet Ezekiel is, des is described for us in verse 2 as the abominations of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem, Israel, same thing, just synonymous. Israel is the people of God, and what are they doing? They're into idols. The one thing God started off the Ten Commandments with was, don't have any other gods before you, don't make any graven images. That's exactly what they did. It says Amorite there and Hittite. They were general names for the dwellers in Canaan and refer to the pagan origins of Jerusalem. Remember, the land of Canaan was a pagan land, and the Jews brought there from Egypt came in, 
were really uh, had to take over a pagan land, the Amorites and the Hittites being emblematic of the pagan Canaanitish society. When the nation was there for a while, you know what happened? They fell into worshiping the gods of the Amorites and the gods of the pagans and the gods of the Canaanites. And they became uh, idolatrous. But in the beginning, God says, when I found you, you know where you were? You were in Egypt. Poor, weak, defenseless, liable to perish, and nobody pitied you. You know what they were doing down in Egypt? They were making bricks, and they didn't give them any straw to make the bricks, and they were beating their backs with whips, and they were oppressed and maligned and abused by the Egyptian culture. And God describes that as, as like a baby just yanked out of its mother's womb and pitched into a field. Nobody even bothered to cut the umbilical cord off. Nobody bothered to wash that little infant with water and cleansing. And nobody rubbed salt. And they rubbed salt to take care of any scratches or wounds that might have occurred in the birthing process or in the dropping process. Nobody bothered to rub some salt that would cause some, some uh, healing and some uh, disinfection. And those little wounds, you were just there, naked with your cord hanging out, filthy with nothing on, lying in the middle of a field. That's what you were. Nothing very desirable about you. Nobody really in the world cared for you. That's how you were when I picked you up. Verse 6, even more vivid, I, when I passed by and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, Live! said to you while you were in your blood, live. Ooh. This is a bloody little filthy baby in the middle of a field, dead. And God says, live. You talk about sovereign grace. You talk about election. Oh, they have no life. This is how it is with sinners, whether you're talking about the nation or the individual. And God says, live. And what did I do, verse 7? I made you numerous like plants of the field. And you grew up and you became tall and you reached the age for fine ornaments and your breasts were formed and your hair had grown. You were still naked and bare. And he shows uh, the early period of Israel. They weren't wealthy when they first came into Canaan. They weren't prosperous. They, were, they had very limited benefits of civilization. Life was tough as Israel began to grow. Then we come to verse 8. Then I passed by you. More times gone by. And I saw you. Hmm. And behold, you were at the time for love. Oh. You've gone past puberty. This little baby, protected, cared, began to grow, develop. All of a sudden, past puberty. Now, the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you. Took a, took a cloak and just put it over her. What was that? That's a Middle Eastern symbol for engagement. Not only did I find you, God says, not only did I raise you, but I came to the place where I wanted to marry you and make you my bride. And I covered your nakedness. And I swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine. This is God's betrothal to Israel. And then I bathed you with water and I washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. You were still pretty dirty by then. I just cleaned you all up. In verse 10, and I clothed you with embroidered cloth and I put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. Girls, this is the kind of guy you're looking for, right? Oh, man, this care, this tenderness, this lavishness. And I adorned you with ornaments 
and put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. This one will get you. And a ring in your nostril. Earrings in your ears. And a crown on your head. I mean, just walking around town, you would draw a little attention. And you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was fine linen silk and embroidered cloth. And you ate fine flour and honey and oil and exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. That's what happened in Israel. The nation began to flourish and flourish, and then came the kings and the Solomonic power and reign and glory. And what did Queen Sheba say? Never in all of her life had she seen anything to compare with this. God's blessing just gushed out. Washing and anointing were the ceremonies preparatory to marriage. Then came all the marriage gifts and the marriage gown and the whole nine yards. And you would imagine that this nation is going to be so grateful, I mean, picked up as a dirty, scruffy, little dead baby in the middle of a field, that this bride of God is going to be so grateful. But verse 15, but verse 14 says, Your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor which I bestowed on you. God made Israel perfect. Just so much love for this special people. But verse 15, you trusted in your beauty. And you took your beauty to the streets. And you became a prostitute. And you poured out your harlotries on every passerby. Unbelievable. This beautiful bride becomes a streetwalker. You took some of your clothes and made for yourself high places of various colors and played the harlot. What is that? You, they took some of their clothes in this metaphoric language and built idol places, high places for the worship of Baal. The harlotries have to do with false gods, false idols. And if God is your true husband and you go after other gods, that's harlotry. You took your beautiful jewels made of gold and my, my gold and my silver, which I've given you, and made for yourselves male images that you might play the harlot with them. He took your embroidered cloth and covered them and offered my oil and my incense before them and my bread. Notice how many times he uses my. He took everything I'd given to you, the, the stuff that I'd given to feed you, and, and you'd offered it before them as a soothing aroma. You took, verse 20, your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Literally, they put them on the fire of the god Moloch and burned up little babies. The Jews literally burning babies. Were your harlotry so small a matter, you slaughtered my children, you offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. Besides all your abominations and harlotries, you didn't remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and squirming in your blood. You forgot where you'd come from. It's really just pathetic. Wickedness, wickedness, wickedness just continues. Uh, he, in verses 15 to 34, which I won't take the time to read, as you go down from where we stopped in verse 23, shameless abandonment, they... they they did every wicked thing you could imagine. Finally, down in verse 35, he says, uh, Therefore, O harlot, now they're just a harlot, just a filthy, prostituted streetwalker. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Because your lewdness was poured out, and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and all your detestable idols and the blood of your sons which you gave you idols, Therefore, I'll gather all your lovers with whom you take pleasure, even all those whom you loved and all those whom you hated. I'll gather them against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them that they may see your nakedness. You know what he's predicting here? The destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of Israel. 
And he said, you've been worshiping all these idols and they belong to all the nations around you and you've gotten into all this idolatry with the nations around you and I'm going to call all these idols and all these nations and they're going to come and destroy you. And he's talking about 586 B.C., particularly the Babylonian captivity. Israel has become like Sodom and Gomorrah, who were the land in the land before Abraham came. And God says, I'm just going to wipe you out. And starting right where we dropped off, all the way down to verse 59, God speaks of this coming destruction. You can read it for yourself. In verse 48 is a telling statement. Or verse 46, your older sister is Samaria. Verse 48, your sister is Sodom. Wow. Wow. Samaria is your sister, and Samaria was destroyed. Sodom is your sister, and Sodom was destroyed. And you're going to be destroyed, too. What makes this amazing is at the very end. Absolutely astonishing. Look at verse 60. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. That is absolutely astonishing to me. What is he saying? He's saying in spite of the wretchedness of all of this, in spite of all of the harlotries and all the idolatry, I made a covenant with you when I picked you up in the middle of that field and cleaned you up, and I will not violate that covenant. It is an everlasting covenant. And that, that is the difference in how God loves His own. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Doesn't matter how many harlotries, doesn't matter how many idolatries, God does love the world, but it is limited love. It is not everlasting love. But He loves His own everlastingly. And sometimes when you look at the world and how they behave, and you look at Christians and how they behave, you can't always tell a lot of difference. But there is a massive difference. There is an eternal difference based upon the promise of God in an eternal covenant. Verse 62, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And verse 63, marvelous, in order that you may remember and be ashamed What's going to shame you? What's going to shame you is everlasting love. That's what's going to shame you. Everlasting love will shame you. Because you're going to say, God, look what I've done. Look what we've done. And you love us anyway. That just heaps up the shame, doesn't it? You'd feel better if God got mad at you. And then he says in verse 63, I'm going to shame you by loving you everlastingly. And you will be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation. You know what you're going to do? You're going to shut your mouth in silence and drop your head in total shame. And what's going to shame you? Such love. When I have forgiven you for all that you have done. Now you're talking about incredible love. You want to know the love of God? That's it. When God makes a covenant with a sinner, that sinner becomes his own and no matter whatever may happen, 
He loves that sinner with an eternal love that never changes to the degree that when you wake up to the realization of your iniquity and God's love, you're going to drop your head in silent shame and humiliation and be humiliated to the depths that God could love you when you've done what you've done. So he says, you're going to know my love when I keep on forgiving you. That's hard to take. That is the essence of the kind of love God has for his own. It saves them. It gives them eternal salvation. No matter how they blasphemed or spurned his love. When he sets his covenant love upon a people, no matter what they do, he will bring to pass that eternal covenant. God has a predetermined covenant with some people that will lead to their salvation. Sodom was destroyed. Samaria was unredeemed. And Israel, he says in this chapter, was worse than Sodom. Israel was worse than Samaria. How come God forgave Israel? Because God wanted to. Because he predetermined to have a covenant with them. God's love for his own is perfect. Complete, saving, and eternal. When you, when you think about the love that God has for His own, it is merciful, it is gracious, it is forgiving, it is restoring, it is exalting, it is lavish love. The New Testament teaches all of that. It is love that holds nothing back. It is inseparable, unbreakable, unconquerable, unchangeable, unwavering, unfading love. It is impervious to all assaults. It is kind, sanctifying, cleansing, purifying. It is love that disciplines, corrects, and chastens, and trains for godliness. It is limitless love. Absolutely limitless love. And God has chosen to just place that love on some people. Yes, He loves the world. And his love for them is unlimited in its extent. But, secondly, it is limited in its degree. He does not love them like he loves his own. To put it simply, he loves his own savingly. He loves his own to the degree that he redeems them. Now, that leaves us with still a dilemma. Why? Why would God love the world in, a, in, a, in an unlimited way only in the realms of common grace, compassion, warning, and gospel offer? And why would He choose some people and love them savingly and eternally even though they may be worse than they rest? It is true. It is true. There are good people who will spend eternity in hell, humanly good. And there are wicked, wretched people that God from before eternity, before time, in eternity, determined to save. Like Paul, blasphemer, injurious, a murderer. Why? Why would God condemn some and save some? Why would he love some only temporally and others eternally? That takes us to the third point, and it's the only answer. God's love is qualified by the demands of his glory. God's love is qualified by the demands of his glory. And you have to think with this. Because God loves doesn't mean he is obligated to, to be an unqualified lover of all people equally. 
You might think so, but that doesn't make it true. He is not a prisoner of his love. Worse, he is not a prisoner of man's definition of love. He is not a prisoner of man's reasonings. He does not have to love everybody the same way, simply because we think he should. Because God loves does not mean that his love is separated from his other attributes. He is composite glory. And here's the answer to this question. Love does not exist in a vacuum. God is not just love. He is holiness. He is justice. He is righteousness. He is wrath. And he's every other attribute. So God is not the jailer, and he is not the prisoner of any one of his attributes. They all act in harmony. And ultimately, God loves in a way that brings him glory. It is tied to his glory, not ours. And the text to understand this is Romans 9. Let's close by looking briefly at a couple of thoughts in Romans 9. And we don't have time, obviously, to go through this. Sometime we, we should go through this chapter with great care. But in Romans 9, the very question we are considering is at issue here. From verse 6 on down, in particular. But let me just show you some very important things in this ninth chapter of Romans. Verse 6. Very important verse. It says this, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, he's talking here about Israel having received all the promises, the covenants, the adoption, and all that. First five verses. And then many Jews don't believe. Many Jews, though the nation is called and blessed, many individual Jews don't believe. Has God's word failed? No. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. First point. God never intended that every Jew would be saved. God never purposed that. They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. That is to say, not everybody born a Jew is going to be in the kingdom. Why? It doesn't say. It just says that's the plan. Verse 7, neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. Just because they come from Abraham doesn't mean they're all God's children. Not all Israel is Israel. Further, it even gets more interesting. In verse 10, there was Rebekah who, when she conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad before the twins were ever born, but in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls her, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Before the children were ever born, there was a predetermined plan that the older child would serve the younger child. In other words, God had a predetermined plan for those boys before they were ever born. Verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That is very strong language. In the end, God had every right to demonstrate his love and every right to demonstrate his hate. He's God. 
He's God. By the way, Esau have I hated? Esau rejected the truth. But hate was never used about Esau in the book of Genesis. It's not until a thousand years passed and Esau's descendants hated God and hated the people of God that God says, I hate them. But that was bound up in God's original plan. God is glorified in his choice of certain Jews. He's glorified in his sovereignty. Not all Israel's Israel. He's glorified in the choice of who serves who. He's glorified in loving Jacob. He's glorified in hating Esau. God has a right to love and he has a right to despise. Verse 14. What shall we say then? There is there's no injustice with God, is there? Oh, no. no. God is just. God is righteous. He's glorified in his justice and his righteousness. For he said to Moses, here it comes again, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. I'll be merciful to whoever I want, and I'll be compassionate to whoever I want. And it does not depend, verse 16, on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And he gives the illustration of Pharaoh. I raised him up for judgment. So 18 says, so he has mercy on whom he desires and hardens whom he desires. So what are you going to say? Why does he find fault? It's all sovereign. He's making all the choices. Can't blame me? On the contrary, verse 20, shut your mouth. God is God, and God will do exactly what he chooses to do. Doesn't the potter have the right over the clay? Yes. And then verse 22, most important. I like the way the New American Standard translates it. What if? So what? If God, willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Doesn't God have a right to demonstrate his wrath? Isn't that part of his attributes? Isn't that who he is? Can't he put his wrath on display? That's him. Can't he put his justice on, on display? Can't he put his judgment on display? Absolutely. He is glorified in his sovereignty. He's glorified in his love. He's glorified in his hate. He's glorified in his justice. He's glorified in his mercy. He is glorified in his hardening. He is glorified in his power. He's glorified in his wrath. He has the right to that. We can't question that. Who are we? I know these things are hard to understand. It gives God the opportunity to display His wrath. And it's all bound up in His sovereign plan. I don't understand how all of that sovereign plan of God can somehow match with the volition and responsibility of man, but God understands it, and if He understands it, I'm okay. All I know is this. I am immensely privileged, and so are you, to be loved to the degree that I am loved, not because I'm better, I'm like Israel, a stinking, dead baby who was picked up, washed, and decorated with beauty for no reason other than the sovereign love of God. And when I realize how everlastingly He loves me, in spite of my sin, I am shamed and humiliated and silent. I also 
have recited to you this morning the fact that the, the gospel offer is universal and Jesus refuses no one who comes. And yet in the end, it all fits his plan and perfectly demonstrates his glory in every dimension of his attributes. I can't resolve all those issues. I can only tell you what the scripture says. And it says that the love of God is unlimited in extent, limited in degree. That is to say, his love for his own is a far greater love than that which he has for the unregenerate world. And in the end, the reason there is an unregenerate community punished forever and a redeemed community blessed forever is because it suits the manifestation of all the attributes of God. And I rest the case in his infinite mind. If I could understand any more than the Bible says, I would have to be divine. And isn't it wonderful that we can live by faith at that point? Sit down, shut up. Don't question God. Just rejoice that he chose you. Amen? Father, thank you for this wonderful week we've had. As we have endeavored to rehearse again your great love for us. As 2 Corinthians 13.11 says, You are the God of love. And Lord, we are the ones who feel it most powerfully. For we are those who are eternally loved. We thank you for that. We thank you that any can come to you and receive that love. We don't understand how that fits into the sovereign plan, how that fits into your predestination and your election. We don't understand that, but we know that you have cried for sinners to come. We know that Jesus shed tears because people wouldn't come. And there are so many invitations. Come, 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 come. That's all we really need to know. We'll leave the unanswerable, the inscrutable, the impossible to you. And we'll do the possible. And what is possible is to go into all the world and preach the saving gospel of God's love to every creature. And what is possible is to live in such profound and overwhelming gratitude for what you've done for us that we are broken and humbled and shamed over our sin to the degree that we avoid it and seek to walk in righteousness Lord we've taken in so much this week we just ask that you would preserve in us what is really from your heart to us and from your word that it would find a way to work itself out in our lives as we think about School beginning soon again. All the opportunities that it presents. May we relish the love which you have given to us. We are unworthy like that little baby in a field. Thank you for picking us up and making us your beautiful bride. We're sorry for our harlotries and we're shamed for your everlasting love. Now use us, Lord, for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.